Welcome to the Hopkins Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeski with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. Joining us today is Dr. Rebecca Natow, an assistant professor of educational leadership and policy at Hofstra University, where she is also the director of the Higher Education Leadership and Policy Studies Program. Dr. Natow is an expert on higher education policy and has conducted extensive research on the U.S. Department of Education's rulemaking process, performance-based funding for higher education, federal higher education policymaking, and research utilization in the creation of federal regulations. Her newest book, entitled Reexamining the Federal Role in Higher Education, Politics and Policymaking in the Post-Secondary Sector, was published by Teachers College Press in January 2022. She joins us today to speak about her legislation research recently published in the Review of Higher Education. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Nato. I really appreciate your time. Yes, thank you for having me. The first question we like to ask all our guests is, can you tell us your academic origin story? How did you come to study educational leadership and policy? Yes. Well, I began my career as an attorney, um, having attended law school right after graduating from college. And I practiced law for a few years, but soon realized that I wanted to do something different with my career. I had always enjoyed the academic aspects of law school, and I had some friends who had transitioned from practicing law to working into higher education. So um, higher education was a field I began to explore, and soon after that, I started in a master's program um, in higher education. And it was through that program that I realized what I really wanted to do was become a higher education policy researcher and also to teach at the post-secondary level. So I got my doctoral degree, and now I'm on the faculty as an assistant professor of educational leadership and policy at Hofstra University on Long Island in New York. Um, as for how I became interested in education policy um, as a topic of research, it's something that has always interested me and it actually um, aligns really well with my background in the law because law and policy are basically two sides of the same coin. So I naturally gravitated towards uh, the policy side of higher education shortly after starting graduate school. Very cool. I love, I love, I love those sort of natural organic pivots. I mean, not even a pivot. It was just a slight turn. Um, yeah. I, I love when people can, can shift slightly, but still stay within their realm of interest. That's a really great, a really great direction change. Yeah. So your paper, uh, which is called Understanding Higher Education Bill Success in the United States Congress, studied six pieces of legislation on their successes and failures through the lens of negotiation theory. What is negotiation theory and how is that a valuable way to examine policymaking? Yeah, so negotiation theory seeks to understand how agreements between two or more parties are reached. This is something that is connected to my background as a lawyer as well, because lawyers are often interested in negotiation um, theory, how to negotiate agreements, how to negotiate favorable agreements for their clients. So. Um, this is something that I learned about in law school and thought would apply well in the context of understanding bill success in Congress. Some concepts associated with negotiation theory include the bargaining zone, which is a term that refers to areas of commonality, common interest between the parties where they might be able to reach an agreement. Um, and also the best alternative to a negotiated agreement or BATNA, which represents a party's best case scenario for if an ag a negotiated agreement 
does not work out. So in other words, what are the deal breakers for a party? What kind of situation would make a party want to walk away from negotiations and not reach an agreement with another party? So I thought this was a useful conceptual framework for better understanding bill success. In other words, why some legislation is successfully enacted by Congress while other legislation, even some with bipartisan support, is not. And I thought this would be useful because in order for legislation to pass Congress, there usually has to be some level of bipartisan agreement, particularly with the Senate's current filibuster rule, which requires a minimum of 60 senators to agree for most bills to move forward. Because neither the Democrats nor the Republicans have 60 senators, and in fact, it's quite rare for one party to have that many in the Senate. It does happen, but it does not happen often. Hmm. Um, in order for ma major legislation to pass, generally speaking, there must be bipartisan agreement between the two major parties. So right now in Congress, um, things are very gridlocked, especially in the higher education space. We haven't, for example, had a reauthorization of the Higher Education Act since 2008, despite the statute being several years past due for reauthorization. So negotiation theory can help us to understand why policymakers reach agreement on some bills, but not others, and what factors might make it more or less likely uh, that Congress members will reach a negotiated agreement on legislation. Interesting, interesting. And I, I love how negotiation theory is really something that probably everybody lives, but you just don't realize it. You know? Exactly. Yes. And you, you're talking to your boss, you're watching yes. two children fight, and that's all happening, but you just know the language and the framework, but it's it's all there. All of that research is, is playing out in front of you day in and day out. That's right. Everybody has a bargaining zone. Everybody yeah, has a, right. a, a, bat, no, a best alternative to to that agreement that they're trying to reach. So- I'm really glad you brought up the Higher Education Act. Can you give us a brief explainer on its history, how it impacts those seeking college degrees, and you know, sort of what it is for those who might not be familiar with it? Yes. So the Higher Education Act, and it's sometimes abbreviated as the HEA, mm -hmm. it's a comprehensive statute that is the legislative starting point for a large number of federal higher education programs. It was first enacted in 1965. Um, as part of President Lyndon Johnson's Great Society initiatives. And the purpose was to provide funding for higher education institutions and students so that students and families who didn't have enough income or wealth to pay for higher education would nonetheless be able to afford college, be able to attend college, earn a degree, and experience all of the social, financial, and educational benefits that come from attending college and earning that degree. The Higher Education Act is an authorizing statute, which means it authorizes uh, the federal government to establish and fund certain programs. And it's supposed to be reauthorized every every several years. And it has been reauthorized eight times since it was first enacted. What the Higher Education Act primarily does is provide funding to higher education institutions for programs that um, meet federal policy goals. So for example, Title IV of the HEA covers student financial aid programs. So the Pell Grant, okay. federal student uh. loans, work study programs, they're all covered by Title IV of the HEA. Other federal programs uh, that are part of the HEA include TRIO programs, which are student success programs on some college campuses, funding for historically black colleges and universities and other um, institutions designated as minority serving institutions or MSIs. There are other smaller federal programs that are funded um, through the HEA. There's some international higher education programs funded through the HEA and it has also funded some programs regarding teacher preparation as well. And because what the Higher Education Act does is to provide funding to higher education institutions, whether through student financial aid or any of those other programs. 
what this does is it opens the door to a lot of other federal policies applying to higher education. Okay. And that is because through its power to spend federal funds, Congress also has the power to attach conditions to the receipt of federal funds. Mm. So in other words, by agreeing to accept the federal funding, higher education institutions also have to agree to be regulated by the federal government in other ways that are related to the receipt of that funding. And if they okay. don't comply with the regulations, then they can be investigated or even removed from eligibility to receive that funding in the future. So this is very important because it expands the reach of the Higher Education Act beyond just the programs that the act authorizes. For example, uh, FERPA, which stands for the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act. It's a privacy law. It applies to higher education institutions that receive federal funds. So does Title IX. So do some provisions. I was going to ask about system. Title IX of the Civil Rights Act and other non-discrimination ah. policies, okay. they apply to institutions that receive federal funds. So the Higher Education Act is a very important, very influential statute that mm. affects virtually every higher education institution and therefore the vast, vast majority of higher education students. Understood. Yeah. And like, I'm really, I, your explanation was was excellent. And that really helps me understand the way that that all trickles down, um, oh, and, and not even trickles down. I mean, it's not a trickle. It's, it's a lot. Yes. Um, but so in order to receive of that funding, this, the HEA, um, what that does is that serves as sort of the, as sort of the, the, the main bucket where all of those other pieces of legislation live. So, um, for, I mean, I think a lot of people know what, what title nine is. Um, and so yes. that this is tied to that in that same way, in the sense it, that, yes, yeah. it's tied to, it's tied to that in that, um, because of the funding that is basically established from the Higher Education Act as an authorizing statute, that opens the door to all of those other regulations, including Title IX, FERPA, the Cleary Act, and others. You note in your conclusion that analysis of lawmakers' priorities help education advocates craft strategies to give education policies better chance at passage. How would they do that? What are, what are those strategies? What, what could they do? Yeah. Well, knowing about what factors have influenced um, policymakers in the past, what has helped them to reach that negotiated agreement, um, can help inform how advocates can approach policymakers in the future. Of course, it's never a guarantee that what has happened in the past is going to necessarily happen in the future, and policy contexts are constantly changing. It's useful to be aware of what has worked in the past and to try to incorporate that knowledge into advocacy strategies. So, for example, one of my findings was that urgent is a factor in whether a higher education bill is likely to succeed. Congress is more likely to act on urgent matters, which is why the CARES Act um, overwhelmingly passed with bipartisan support during the early weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic. That bill, among other things, provided funding, emergency financial resources to colleges, to state governments, to higher education students, and others. Um, yet, we haven't seen, as I mentioned, a Higher Education Act reauthorization in many years because Congress continues to appropriate funding on an annual basis to keep those programs authorized and running. Um, so there isn't that same sense of urgency. So therefore, policy advocates might strategize about how to develop a sense of urgency around an issue that they support and how to send that message of urgency to policymakers that could help to make it more likely that a bill addressing that issue would get serious consideration. In another example, one of my findings was that policy issues that are a priority for key congressional leaders 
uh, make it more likely that a higher education bill would be successful. And these leaders include the chairs of the relevant education committees in each House of Congress. So the Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee in the Senate and the Education and Labor Committee in the House. So advocates could figure out which congressional leaders are likely to be sympathetic to their arguments or could identify a policy priority of those leaders and incorporate that somehow into a policy proposal to make it more likely to win leadership support. Mm. Um, an example of this happened in 2019, um, the FUTURE Act, which provided permanent funding for MSIs under Titles Three and Five of the Higher Education Act. Uh, when that bill passed, it included a provision for simplifying the FAFSA, which is the free application for federal student aid. This was a well-known longtime priority of Senator Lamar Alexander, who at the mm -hmm. time was the chair of the Senate's Education Committee. So in addition to there being a sense of urgency around the Future Act, since MSIs were facing the prospect of losing that funding, the bill also contained a well-known priority of a key congressional leader. So this illustrates how advocates can identify policy priorities of congressional leaders to include in their policy proposals and make them more likely to gain that crucial support in Congress. And that being said, what's happening now? Are there any critical notable education bills that are currently currently coming up for debate or vote in Congress right now? Yeah, well, so we're not seeing a Higher Education Act reauthorization bill moving forward anytime soon, but there has been some legislative activity mainly around providing funding for certain um, higher education programs and policy priorities, since the predominant way that Congress influences higher education is through federal funding. So mm -hmm. some items that are currently on the agenda include bills to fund workforce training programs, bills to fund substance abuse prevention programs on college campuses, mm -hmm. and bills around funding mental health resources and suicide prevention programs on college campuses. There are also some bills to enhance uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics or STEM education at all education levels. But the upcoming midterm elections are preoccupying Congress at the moment because these elections will determine party control of Congress and party control will determine who leads the various congressional committees and therefore the kinds of bills that are likely to move forward in the next Congress. So I would not expect too much activity and certainly not any large bills, large legislative activity, anything that could be considered partisan or remotely controversial to pass over the next few months uh, before party control over the next uh, congressional session is determined. Understood. Understood. Look, look again in, in mid-November. <laughs> exactly. Or December. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. After, after yeah. Thanksgiving. Right. Um, so, so what can those who care about this issue, which you know, really is pretty much anyone, I feel like it's, everybody is touched by this issue in some way or another, if not through their own education, then their loved ones, their families, what can they, what can folks do to help keep themselves informed? How can they advocate on their behalf and on behalf of their students? Um, do you think that students and families really, you know, the, 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 the folks at the, on, on the campuses, do they, do they have a voice in this process? I do. I think that everybody has the potential to have a voice. I've seen um, policy advocacy work, and I think it's very important for everybody to stay informed about policies that impact them, um, but also about policy processes and how mm. they work and how people can influence the policy process. So for students and their families, I recommend staying up to date on the latest higher education policy news by regularly reading higher education news outlets. Um, the Chronicle of Higher Education and Inside Higher Education are two that I read every day. They do an excellent job of reporting on current higher education policy issues. I also like Politico's education reporting, which often provides information about sort of that background and behind the scenes 
discussions um, happening in Congress, in and around Congress, which is very important to know about um, for fully understanding the context of what's mm -hmm. going on in the policy community. Another thing that I've learned from my research is the importance of collective action of working collaboratively with others who hold the same interests that you do, and particularly with people and groups who are experienced with organizing and with policy advocacy. So I encourage people to do some investigating to figure out which organizations, such as professional associations um, that do advocacy work, represent their interests and to join with those organizations. So for example, if you work in student affairs in a higher education institution, the National Associations of NASPA and ACPA they both do a fair amount of policy work. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of NASPA's Capitol Hill days and, and webinars that they provide on policy briefings every so often. Um, there are also state and local organizations that do similar policy work at different levels of government. So for example, here in New York, where I live, um, every year there is a student aid advocacy day where mm -hmm. advocacy groups, representatives of institutions and students go to Albany and communicate with state level policymakers about the importance of student financial aid. So I recommend finding those organizations that best represent your own interests and, and the policies that you wanna see promoted and contacting them to find out how you can get involved. It's also important to know who your representatives in Congress are and that they are responsive to listening to constituents. One thing I was told by congressional staff who I, I interviewed for my research Mm -hmm. is that they want to hear from constituents. They want to hear, for example, from people who work on college campuses mm -hmm. about what it's like to implement federal programs at the local level. They want to hear from students and their families about their experiences with student financial aid, including student loan debt. Sharing personal stories and experiences with policymakers can be a powerful thing, and Congress members and their staff do want to hear from constituents. So people should not be afraid to reach out to them and to share their experiences and their stories. That's great advice. And I think, I, I think from a personal note, I, I feel like, you know, I feel, I definitely feel empowered on a local level. I, we have a very similar day here in Maryland. We have Annapolis mm. day. Um, we all go to Annapolis and it's the same kind of thing, but once it kind of gets up to that federal level, I, there, there's a level of like, oh, well, they don't care about, you know, this person in this state, but I'm really glad you said that. And that, and that this isn't hearsay. This is you telling me that these staffers have said this to you. Yes. Um, so, to, so that people can hear that and understand that, that, that really is, that that's true. They want to hear, yeah. they want to hear from folks and understand what's really going on on the ground. That, that's right. And what you just said um, about people feeling that maybe the, at the federal level, the policymakers won't listen or aren't interested in listening to them. Um, that is something that the federal staffers have heard too. And, and what ah. they've told me is that it makes, it, it disappoints them to hear that. They want to know, um, they want people to know that they are approachable and they do want their constituents to reach out and to, and to speak to them about these policies. It's really important to do that. And I, I and I'm also glad you noted that people should know who the representatives are. Yes, <laughs> um, I will. And I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to walk the walk and talk the talk. I will put a link to a, a place where you can look that up for everyone who on the podcast notes, in case they don't know, they can go ahead and double check and get the, get the list. Fantastic. I think that's a great idea, especially with recent redistricting. Some people's yes. representatives have changed. So it's as, always- As mine did. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it's happened around here too. So it's important to always know who your representatives are. It's true. We started getting flyers um, for our midterm with a different district number on it. And we were yep. very confused. I mean, truly. And I said, oh, wait a minute, this is- you know, maybe not a good thing, but it's changed. And so at it's least changed. at the very least, you need to know who, who your folks are. So thank Absolutely. you for that. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Um, so what are you working on now um, in terms of research? Is there anything coming up for you that you'd like to share with us? Yes, um, I am currently in the process of collecting data for a study on higher education Title IX administrators as policy actors. So okay. um, just for your listeners who might not be familiar, Title IX is a federal policy. It was first enacted in 1972 um, that um, prevents discrimination um, and harassment on the basis of sex, gender, gender identity in educational institutions that receive federal funds. Um, so every college campus that receives federal funds does have a Title IX coordinator. There are also sometimes deputy coordinators, investigators, other administrators doing Title IX work. So what I'm examining is um, how how do these administrators implement Title IX policy at the local level on their campus? Um, I'm using concepts from policy implementation theory to examine how they go about implementing the policy, the extent to which they engage in any sort of policy creation or policy advocacy work around Title IX and related issues, and also how in institutional context influences how the federal policy gets implemented on college campuses across all the different college campuses in the United States, there's so much diversity in terms of how large the campus is, what their focus is, the student body composition, the resources that are available to the institution. So how do these factors influence the work that the Title IX administrators do? Um, and uh, what supports could they um, could they use? Could their institutional leaders provide them um, to help them with that very important role? Interesting. How, so how many, if you know, nationally, how many Title IX Administrators are there? Oh, I mean, is that in the thousands? I it, it's it's in it's got. I don't know the exact number. It's got to be in the thousands because again, any um, any institution that receives federal funds has to mm -hmm. apply has to comply with the Title IX policies. So between the the Title IX coordinator role um, and also any other administrator who's who's assisting with that role, it it winds up being a very right. large number of people. Yeah, and I'm sure at, at some larger institutions, it's it's departments big. There's what I'm finding is that in some institutions, there's somebody who is a Title IX coordinator. That's their job. There's mm -hmm. other institutions where the Title IX coordinator also has five or six other roles that they play mm -hmm. on campus. So again, it it really and how does that affect how the policy? How the policy gets implemented, the amount yeah. of attention that gets given to Title IX issues oh, and Title IX claims on campus. Absolutely. So does the legis does the does the legislation itself, does Title IX dictate only that there needs to be a coordinator? It does not say that needs to necessarily be one full-time equivalent human being. It I mean, does, like, does it is okay? It doesn't have so to it can be, be someone with six other hats. It can, it can, and and it is. Oftentimes, ah. it is depending on on the amount of resources an institution has has. And I've spoken with people who. Um, I, I don't even know how they have enough time in their day to complete all the work that, the, wow. that they're responsible for. And Title IX coordination is one of those roles. One of many. And that's so key exactly. because I, the thing that I was so struck by just in learning more about it in the last, I don't know, 10 years, growing up in my head, what I understood Title IX to be was just girls sports. Like that's how I understood it. Um, yes. And it's so much bigger than that. And so much more, you know, critical work that, that, that touches on all different, like you said, it's all different levels of student life. And so that's, that's disconcerting, but yet I'm, I'm very interested in your research and, and knowing that you're, you're looking into that and understanding all the differences at all the different institutions. Yeah, thank you. And it's interesting. I think um, I think decades ago, Title IX was focused on um, athletics, gender equity and athletics. Yes. Um, and recent policy changes just in the past, um, I want to say 10 to 12 years, have, mm -hmm. have focused a lot more on sexual harassment, sexual assault on, on mm -hmm. college campuses. Mm -hmm. um, and because policy changes 
um, frequently between presidential administrations. Mm. That complicates the work of Title IX administrators on campus because every four years or so, we have a new presidential administration come in changing the administration's Title IX policy. So there's new training Mm. that needs to go on on campuses, reading and understanding um, the new policies and figuring out, is your institution in compliance with the new policies? And Mm. if not, how, how do we get there? So it definitely complicates the work that Title IX administrators do. Oh my goodness. Well, definitely something worth researching then. What, so what um, do you, that's just something that you're currently in process of, or is that, is that imminently published or what, where's, what's the status of that? Oh, I'm in the process of collecting data at the moment. Oh, okay. So. Sorry. You're just getting, <laughs> just, actually, getting warmed, just getting warmed up. Getting warmed up. I've actually um, conducted most of the interviews just this summer. Um, I received a small grant from the NASPA foundation to conduct okay. this research, which I'm really grateful for. And I'm hoping to wrap up my interviews soon, um, do my data collection and hopefully have something in writing in the near future. Excellent. Well, I'm very much looking forward to reading that. Um, and I'll, other work. Thank you so much for taking the time. This is all, you know, so much stuff that I, I hear about and I listen to, and I know, I know it's relevant, but to reading your paper really helped me understand it on a, on a deeper level. And as, you know, as a parent of not yet college age kids, but it's coming. Um, it's, it's really, <laughs> it's really good. It's really kind of good to get a, to get a deeper understanding on this and to go into those years, kind of knowing what's going on. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you about this. This podcast is a production of Hopkins Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu.